It's time for Positive Living with Patricia Raskin. The views and opinions of the host and callers are not necessarily those of this station, its management, or sponsors. And now, looking on the positive side of life, here's Patricia Raskin with Positive Living. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Positive Living. I'm Patricia Raskin. Our program is brought to you by Carteret General Hospital, Brooks Funeral Home, Smith & Associates Family Dentistry, and Distinctive Teak, all in Moorhead City. My show, Positive Living, brings you practical solutions and positive principles to help you live happy, empowered, and successful lives. Tonight, I have a very special program for you. It is pre-recorded, so you won't be calling in, but I am very honored to have on the program Jane Seymour, who is an acclaimed actress with more than 50 motion pictures and television programs to her credit. She is the author of the new book, Hot Off the Press, Remarkable Changes, Turning Life's Challenges into Opportunities. Welcome, Jane Seymour. Hi, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I want to talk about your very first chapter of your book, which is when you talk about looking at your roots. You say you really have to go back and do that. Now, you did that after you had some dramatic turning points and some real challenges in your life. Um, how easy is that to do, Jane, for people, and what do they have to do? Do you think that they should go into therapy? How do you think people should help themselves in that way? Um, you know, I'm, I'm not against therapy. I think therapy can be a very useful way, really, to be listened to and for at the same time for you to hear yourself. But, you know, another way of doing it, I think, would be just to, to write down your story for yourself or really just to talk to someone about it and, and, um, and, and face it. But I, I looked at my roots. I think being an actress, you know, you're asked to play different characters and Mm -hmm. how to put yourself in character and to kind of relate to different things that different people do as different characters. And, of course, in in the context of being an actress, I I look at my own life and I look at my own experience and I try to relate to that in terms of the character. So I suppose I sort of give myself an analysis just in, in, Mm -hmm. in the job that I do. Just, you know, looking at your, at your childhood, how you fit in at school, how, how you related with your parents and, mm-hmm. and, and what your drives were and, and what your ups and downs have been and, and um, you know, kind of assessing who you are and, and where you came from. Now, you had, a, you had a very nice childhood. You had wonderful supportive parents. Now, even though your, your mother was a survivor of the Japanese prisoner of, of a war camp, that was difficult, but she gave you a lot of courage and strength and belief in yourself. So did your father, who was a physician. Talk about what you've learned from your mother's incredible strength. Well, I learned a great deal from my mother. Um, I think she taught me, and as did my father, that you can only ever do your own best. So that whatever the circumstances that, that happen to happen in your life and, and whatever it is that you're trying to do, that, that if you feel you did the best you could under the circumstances, then that is good enough. And as a, as a teen and as a child, your dream was to be a ballerina. So yes. when you did your best and that didn't work for you, how did they encourage you to, to move on to what you wanted to do? I had a passion. And I... They really wanted me to become a teacher, but I really didn't want to become mm-hmm. a teacher. I just somehow knew that I wanted to perform. And I think what they did is they, they left the, the, the sort of the door for me to communicate. Mm-hmm. Um, I was able to talk about what I didn't, was and wasn't comfortable doing. I mean, they had choices they thought would be right for me, and they actually listened to me when I said, you know, those choices are not what I want. They're not what I think I want. And they were allowed me to, to try and do what it was that I thought I wanted to do. They all thought I was making a huge mistake, you know, trying to become an actress. Um, <laughs> and, 
But, you know, they, they also believed in me, and they, the way they raised me was to say, well, these, these are from our experience, mm-hmm. you know, what could happen and what couldn't happen. Um, obviously, it's up to you to make the choice, but, you know, from our experience, this is how we think, you know, it you might want to make a choice. And yet they taught you to be very resourceful. I mean, you learned how to make clothes and plant gardens and do a lot of things mm-hmm. as a child. And, and when you then later had financial issues and it was difficult, did those things help you? Oh, absolutely. I think uh, I learned a great deal from, from my parents um, and a great deal of respect for people who learned how to do things when they needed to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, being able to do everything is, was very important. Um, I did learn to cook. I learned to, to sew. I, I, I spent time in hospitals. I learned how to be an auxiliary nurse and how to help heal people. And um, I learned uh, a lot of languages. Um, mm. You know, I, I really I, I learned a great deal, but I think also I learned from my father a passion for learning. Mm-hmm. You know, it was very interesting. He, right to the end, you know, he never stopped learning and, and, and trying to, to figure out new stuff. So um, I think I think really what they gave me was a passion for life. Mm-hmm. And, and speaking we of didn't have any money. You know, we, 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 we had to make things ourselves and make things happen. But you know, money was never of any importance in our family. You know, that was a question that I've been thinking about all week I wanted to ask you is how important is money and has your celebrity status helped you along the way because of resources that you may have had? Well, you know, I've been up and I've been down. I mean, when I started, I had pretty much nothing. And, um, you know, then I earned some money. And uh, when I came to America, I had absolutely nothing. Mm. Um, and I've, I think because money was never very important in my family, that, that I never really particularly needed or wanted it, but I don't like to be in debt. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, I, I like nice things. I, I, I really like the, the freedom that money gives you in terms yes. of being able to travel places. For example, you know, my mother and my family are in England, and, and if I want to go and see them tomorrow, I know I can afford to get on an airplane and do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I live in a very nice house now, and I, and I have nice things. But um, not that long ago, I had nothing. I lost everything. I was beyond mm-hmm. bankrupt. I, I was mm-hmm. in, in terrible financial straits. And um, really, when it came down to it, you know, money really is, you don't take money with you. You know, money money is only useful if you can do something with it. Um, to me, it's only gratifying to have something if you feel you can give it away and you can help other people or you can share it in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some you know, of that's the... That's how I see money. Money is, is just a, an ability to make things happen. So what are some of the lessons that you teach your children about money? Um... Uh, really, I think I think in a way it's tough on kids if they are raised with money because they don't have the incentive to go out and earn it. You know, they don't. They're not hungry enough. <laughs> and so, actually, my kids don't get any money really. I mm-hmm. they and they're not. I'm told spoiled. I mean, I don't think they are. They they work very hard for whatever they have. They um, they don't sort of insist on buying things. They're not sort of major shoppers or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, they. They don't demand toys or, you know, want this and that. They, 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 they save what pocket money they get or money from the tooth fairy or whatever <laughs> it is. Um, and they like, to, um, they like to give their money away. They like to, you know, if they think that's yeah. something important that they want to contribute to or if they want to buy something for someone, um, they'll use the money that way. But they, they're not really, they don't think about money very much. And mm. 
it's not really part of their lives particularly. Do you think because of the way that you were raised that when you went through the hard times it was easier for you to get through them because you went through some tough times and we'll talk about them, the near-death experiences and, and the difficult birth of your children, and but you've also come through some amazing things. What do you think it is, Jane, that has gotten you through these times? I think it has been being honest with myself at the time that these each thing happened and kind of being in the moment, mm. acknowledging what was happening, however difficult it was, allowing myself to process whatever grief that that entailed or or, or frustration or disappointment or and, and really allow that allow myself to feel those things and, and, and express myself. But then somehow um, I am able to move on. Now, a lot of people don't. A lot of people mm-hmm. kind of get stuck yeah. in a, in a, like a uh, like a long playing record with a scratch that keeps going round and round and round, and they find themselves yeah. going round and round. What you know, coulda, shoulda, woulda, coulda, shoulda, woulda. Mm-hmm. You know, I try and get rid of all those words. Yeah. I I try to go back to well, under the circumstances, did I do the best I could mm-hmm. possibly have done under those circumstances? Yes. You know, therefore, tomorrow we'll be here and I'll just see what I can do tomorrow. And if I was very ill and I was, you know, near death, I would just say to myself, okay, I I will have confidence in the people who are looking after me and I will Mm -hmm. do everything I possibly can to look after myself and, and kind of hang in there. Well, you know, in reading the book and and looking at the three near-death experiences you had, which were amazing, and some of them where you saw yourself from above the room and others where you hallucinated and and had your your father spoke to you during that point, um, all of those experiences, to me, say that you were meant to stay here for some very important reason. Do you think there's a special mission that you have in your work? You know, I... I don't look upon it as a mission. I just feel like um, there are things I'm capable of doing that I would like to do, and I, I'm not a great one for talking about what I'm going to do. I tend to just do it. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember when when I almost died. I remember quite clearly thinking to myself, "Oh no, no, no! I, uh, there's more I want to do in life." And mm-hmm. I, the things that I have been doing since are the kinds of things things that I feel I will continue to do until until the day I die, and that is doing the best I can to help other people, to raise my kids to be and want to, you know, to do the same thing, um, to raise them to have a passion in life, to, to um, just use my abilities the best my, that I possibly can mm-hmm. uh, for the good of mm-hmm. more than just one person. One of the things that really struck me that I'd really like to talk about is how you have remained friends with all of your former husbands, even yeah. though you had to work through the pain of your marriage to David Flynn, the father of your children. And, you know, you, you, almost, you, you had problems financially, almost to the point of bankruptcy. But you have gone on to work through all of that and become good friends not only with him, but with one of your former hu- husbands, Jeffrey Planner, who you call Jeep, who yeah. has written a children's book with you. Yeah. Now, that, that's remarkable for many people. I guess two questions. One is how you did did that, Jane, and what advice do you give to people going through these nasty divorces that spend all of this money and hurt the children in the process? Talk about that. Oh, gosh. I mean, there's a whole book in that one. That's sure. <laughs> well, first of all, I have been married four times, and in fact, last week I was with my two other ex-husbands, with Michael Attenborough and Jeffrey Planer, and I had spent some wonderful hours with both of them, both of whom have become very close friends of my husband, James Keach. So all four husbands, um, we all get along really well. How do you make that happen? And I also made friends with the ex-wives, all of the ex-wives. 
Mm. Every single one, including, <laughs> including my, my uh, James's ex-wife, who I recently saw at the funeral of my father-in-law. Mm. And um, uh, how do I make it happen? I just, I feel that when you've loved someone enough to marry them or to have a, you know, a, a very special relationship, that, mm-hmm. that there is a bond there, that you know, there was something there. And, and your relationship changes. I mean, I, I have respect for those people. I have respect for the fact that I did care a great deal about them at one time. And there's a love that still continues, but not a, not a, a love in that I would want to be married to them or live with them or, um, you know, be, be, have that kind of relationship with them. But do I care about them? I mean, yes. I mean, absolutely. I mean, if I, if I know that, that Michael is, having a hard time or if I hear that he's had a great success, you know, that matters to me mm-hmm. in the same way with, with Jeffrey and with David. I care about his well-being, but I don't necessarily need to, to be part of his life. What advice do you give to women going through tough divorces? Okay, I, I have some good advice here. I just see people making a terrible mistakes when it comes to the children. And really the interesting thing is when you've been through a divorce, the lawyers are the only winners. They make a mm-hmm. ton of money out of it, and they make money out of making you mad, making you so crazed that you you find yourself, you know, spending more and more and more money on on a divorce. And I think what what you can do is if you if you know the relationship is over and you know you want to separate and you know you have children and you know you have property, if only people could be honest and they could just divide this. You know, and just say, okay, we were together for X amount of time. We both put 100% of our effort into this, into this um, relationship, and we have children that we put 100% of our, our 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 time and love into, and we care about these children. And we will always be the parents of these children. Mm-hmm. Let us separate, you know, the money angle and the possession angle from the children. Mm-hmm. You know, the whole aspect of being parents, whether you're divorced or, or you're or you're still married, you will always be the parents of those children. Mm-hmm. And they have to know that they can love you and that they can see you and speak to you and be with you and 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 be loved by you for the rest of their days. And so the kindest thing you can do is to find some way that works for them, that they feel that they have um, unlimited um, opportunities to see and speak to you. On that note, we're going to take... And they do. <laughs> wonderful. We're going to take a break. We are talking to... The Remarkable Jane Seymour, who is the author of the book, Remarkable Changes, Turning Life's Challenges into Opportunities. Folks, this is a brand new book, hot off the press. I'm very fortunate to be able to interview Jane Seymour now at the beginning of this wonderful tour. We'll be right back. everyone, we are back. You are listening to Positive Living, and I'm Patricia Raskin, and I'm so honored tonight to interview a role model, uh, someone that I am a fan of. I'm very excited. My guest is the wonderful actress Jane Seymour. She's the author of the new book, Remarkable Changes, and she has many inspiring stories in this book, as well as her own. And the subtitle is Turning Life's Challenges into Opportunities. And a lot of you know her from what we have to talk about next, Jane. My favorite thing is Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman. You know, I have to tell you that I have, and I have watched every single episode of Dr. Quinn, (laughs) 
probably my husband saying here twice because he sat through some of them with me through the reruns. I just, um, I'll tell you, I give many talks around the country, motivational talks, and I would talk about Dr. Quinn when I would speak because I really feel that so much of the media is not positive. And this was, was I mean, this wasn't Pollyanna to me. I mean, you touched no, it was, on... It was edgy, wasn't it, sometimes? I felt it was, although the media said it wasn't, but I felt it was. Well, they weren't was. watching it. <laughs> That's and true. it was very interesting when it first came out. I remember, I think it was someone from TV Guide gave it a very bad review and just said it was a load of mushy, whatever. <laughs> and then a year later, he actually wrote a retraction, a full page, in which he said, boy, did he make a mistake, that finally he'd actually bothered to really watch it. And he realized mm-hmm. that it wasn't at all what he thought it was and that, you know, that um, obviously millions of people had discovered it. And so that's why he took a second look at it and he but realized it- he'd made a mistake. And I thought, how often do you actually see a retraction mm-hmm. from a oh. from a, a, a major critic? Never, right? Absolutely. But and we, we did we did do sort of edgy edgy subjects sometimes, you know, and sometimes they were a little bit too edgy just for the, you know, even for the Dr. Quinn audience. Yes, but but the, but I do feel though, Jane, that it gave you the solution. It, when you when you left at the end, you had a solution. There was a resolution. Always. Yes, there was a resolution, and I think it was very important to me because I got very involved in creating some of these stories too. Mm-hmm. But it was very important to me that we learned something from the story, and that Dr. Quinn wasn't always right. That uh, we, mm-hmm. the audience, learned through her eyes because yes. she sometimes wasn't aware of what was really going on, and she you know, had a learning curve for herself, because we all do. We aren't all perfect. We don't all know the answers to everything. We don't all know how to handle every situation. Mm-hmm. If we did, life would be very boring. You know, <laughs> my, my question is, how much of the role is you? Now, you were a woman on your own. You've taken ch- care of children other than your biological children. You a lot of similarities. Yes, your father was a doctor with a yes. passion of history for medicine. Your sisters work in homeopathy, and you work with Native American medicine on the program. Um, how similar are you? I would say pretty similar. I mean, when they wrote when they wrote the original screenplay and I read it, I, it totally hit a chord with me. And then, of course, once I started playing the role, they really incorporated a lot of my backstory or, or you know ideas that I had into the part. And I really made her my own character in some ways. I mean, I would like to think. I mean, obviously, I'm not a doctor. I'm nowhere near as smart as Dr. Quinn, and. Uh, Probably nowhere near as patient as Dr. Quinn. <laughs> but um, really, uh, the issues and the way she handled things and, and who she was as a person was, was very much very close to who I am. I want to ask you, your mother's name is Mika. Is yes. that how Michaela came? No, no, no. They they had the whole thing planned before really? I came along. I literally, I was offered the part at 7 o'clock at night one night. And the following morning at 10 a.m., I said yes, and at 12 the same day, I met the producers for the first uh-huh. time, uh, did costume fittings, and the following morning at 6 a.m., I was playing Michaela Quinn. But what a, what a coincidence oh. that her name is, is similar. Yeah. Michaela, yeah. Yes, it's similar. And also you said that this was almost, in a way, you felt like kind of a gift from your father because he was no longer alive, but he had such a passion for the history of medicine. Absolutely. He used to take me to the Welcome Museum in, in um, England, which is a famous museum for medical history. And mm. I worked in hospitals since I was about two or three years old. Oh. You know, I've... I've I, that, I was I was that character in many ways. In fact, you're the first person ever pointed out to me about Mika and Michaela. <laughs> I'd never thought of that. Oh, I thought that's about that. That's pretty cool. I, I, that's well, another. Thank you. That's another. Okay. 
tell me, why do you think the series, I mean, I can tell you my opinion, but why do you think the series had such a loyal following? And even afterwards, for a year, you had tremendous groups on the Internet. Oh, still, and there's a huge following. You know, they have uh, Dr. Quinn uh, Times. They actually have published mm. um, four times a year now. They have um, a, a wonderful magazine, and they interview all of us and, you know, keep up with what's going on and talk about everything. And there's an enormous following. I think it was because it dealt with the human condition, mm-hmm. I think, um, there were no other programs really out there that were intelligent and uh, compassionate and entertaining and could be watched by all generations. And um, I think people really identified with all the different characters. You know, you was Orson Bean and, and Barbara Babcock, who represented the oh, older yes. generation. And, yeah. and then, you know, the young teenage kids who had their issues and you know any any young kid could just mm-hmm. you know deal with first love mm-hmm. and and you know stealing and, and kids mm-hmm. with from different racial backgrounds everything I mean, everything I mean everything you dealt with racism you dealt Pollution, with jealousy um, yeah. politics mm-hmm. um, abuse abuse um, uh, religion religion mm-hmm. yes everything Particularly the uh, the episode when you burn the books. Remember oh, when gosh, yeah. you were trying to burn the books because that was a uh, great one, wasn't it? Yes. And then we said, well, you better burn the Bible because <laughs> that was a lot of murder was, and mayhem in there. Oh, that was well done. I thought you that know, was a really good one. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because what you talked about now, it's kind of a, a throwback from Dr. Quinn, is people getting together and talking, but having knitting clubs. Knitting is coming back. Oh, big time! I, I have to laugh. I mean, all these. All these movie stars are sitting around knitting, and my, my press agent, she goes to the knitting club. She knits all the time, and, of course, I knitted all my life, and mm-hmm. that was something I loved doing. And uh, I, But that's what people do. They knit and talk at the same time, and mm-hmm. I tend to paint and, and talk sometimes. You know, mm-hmm. I, if, I'll, if people come to my house and hang with me, invariably I have a paintbrush or a, a pencil or something in my hand, and, and I sort of pass them around mm-hmm. and say, hey, do you want to have a try? And mm-hmm. the next thing I know, we... When we're painting, we we tend to talk about you know what's really happening and what's mm. going on in our lives, and mm. um, I get I get some of the best conversations out of people when we're doing an art project. Mm. But knitting is the same kind of deal. Yeah. You know, you write that the moral of your book is that you cannot affect remarkable change in your life if you allow your spirit to be paralyzed. You either choose fear or you make the most of it. Yeah. Now, one of the things that really struck me in the book was how you brought your mother back to uh, to Indonesia after you had filmed War, uh, War and Remembrance yes. and that you found a woman at the airport who was a fan of yours guided you to the places your mother had been in when she was a, a, you know, a prisoner of war. Right. And just how she didn't want to go to the last place because it was too painful, but somehow everybody coaxed her and the guide f- figured it out and she got there. Talk about, Jane, how that experience changed her life and your life. Well, I, you know, my mother was trying to be very brave since the war. Um, she, she survived a concentration camp for three and a half years. Most of her friends, a lot of them died or committed suicide after the war or um, became very, very religious with a sort of almost cult-like religions. And um, she went on and married my father, and, and you know, to all intents and purposes was fine, but my father told me that she had terrible nightmares and would wake oh. up in the middle of the night. She had a real you know, fear of anything Japanese. And, mm-hmm. and um, when, we, when I took her back to Indonesia, she had seen me, and when I did War and Remembrance, and she'd said, I, I'm ready to go back to the camps. I'm ready to go back and see where all my nightmares were. And what she'd basically done was after these horrors, she kind of closed that side of her life off and just 
started with a fresh page and, you know, gone to England and met my father and had this, this, this other life. And she'd never really processed it. Mm-hmm. And what happened was the most amazing thing. We took her back to Indonesia and she found some of these places that she'd been and all of a sudden it's almost like she went into a trance and she mm. would weep openly and she would just start talking, just 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 rambling on about what happened and who was there and what this building meant and what used to go on. And my father and I just, we all just stood back and stared at her. And this whole, she really had a cathartic release, I, I imagine. Mm. And, and the, the, the really sad part, the tough part is that there is still, I know, a lot of really terrible things that went on that even to this day she doesn't dare really talk mm-hmm. about. And, and when I was writing about this in the book, and my mother was, was adamant that I, I send it to her and read her every single word mm-hmm. that's going to be in the book yeah. because she wanted to change it in such a way to soften it because she didn't want people to see how really bad it really was. So trust me, it was ten times worse than she allowed mm. me to write it about. Do, does <laughs> she still have the nightmares, Jane, after that experience, or have they lessened since she had that release? They, they, they lessened. I mean, she, she really had a, a huge release after that and was able to really talk about a lot of it. But, you know, her feeling is, she goes, she says, well, you know, a, a lot of these things that I'm, I can tell you are, are things that I'll tell you privately, but I don't want the whole world to know about it because, you know, there's, there's no need to. Because, you know, the thing that, that, that is astounding is people who survive horrible things like this, a lot of them feel guilty about the fact that they survived mm-hmm. and other people didn't. Mm-hmm. I, I learned that when I did the War and Remembrance and I was around yes. all the people who survived Auschwitz. You'd think that, you know, they could all talk openly with one another about you know, where they were, what happened, and the rest of it. But, you know, there are still horrendous um, guilts and fears and, and worries that they have that, you know, they, they, they keep to themselves. Hmm. All right, we're going to take a break. We are talking to the renowned actress, Jane Seymour, the remarkable actress, Jane Seymour, and her book is Remarkable Changes, Turning Life's Challenges into Opportunities. I'm Patricia Raskin for Positive Living. Stay tuned, folks. This is a specially pre-recorded show for you this evening. We'll be right back. Hi everyone, we are back. You are listening to Positive Living, and I'm Patricia Raskin. And my guest tonight is the remarkable Jane Seymour, author of the new book, Remarkable Changes, Turning Life's Challenges into Opportunities. Jane Seymour is an acclaimed actress with more than 50 motion pictures and television programs to her credit. She's also an accomplished painter whose works in watercolor and oil are exhibited and sold around the country. She now has her own clothing line sold in Crossing Point Catalog, featuring fabrics based on her paintings. She is the mother of four and the stepmother of two, and she lives with her family in Malibu, California. Jane, I wanted to talk about one of the concepts in your book. We were talking about extended families. Certainly in Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman, that the whole concept of the extended family was there. The whole community took care of each other, and you adopted these children. And then in your own life, where you have your two natural children and then uh, stepchildren, and then you sort of have adopted children from your former spouses. <laughs> so you have an extended family, and, and you're all very close. And you remarked on when you were in Africa that you identify with the Maasai wives because they all share. Um, they, they, they live in houses kind of next to each other, and they share with the chores. Now, I'm not sure that you're touting polygamy here, No, I think it's very interesting. You know, yeah. when you hear about um, a culture where a man has, you know, three wives, and right. you hear, well, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. I can't go there. But then when you actually go there and you see how they live, 
you see how you can understand how it works, and it seems to work really well for them there because um, one wife will you know give birth to several children and will be responsible for for getting food and for building the house and keeping the house waterproof, which they do by putting the dung on the roof. And mm-hmm. so that wife works very hard, brings the water to the camp and everything like that. When they have when the husband brings home another wife, this woman now can help share the chores. So basically, it's an enormous help for the first wife to have a second wife because mm-hmm. the second now they have, they have a friend, they have someone who can help them with the kids. They you know they take it in turns to get the water to to you know to do the the chores that need to be done, and um, that's really how it works. I mean, they basically um, you know they're they're procreating, they're they're creating a family, you know, for the man, and the man's going out and he's. Um, finding ways to get cows, which is their form of money, mm-hmm. and uh, their job is to maintain the household, and so the more mm-hmm. help, the better. And no jealousy. And I don't believe there's, there's jealousy. No, I think it all seems to work very well for them. Um, it, it's interesting because, you know, I, now I'm thinking about it. I am, as you, uh, you, we spoke about earlier, I'm very friendly with my ex-husbands, but I'm mm-hmm. also friendly with ex-wives, mm-hmm. and uh, especially the mother of of um, the my stepchildren, both stepchildren have wonderful mothers, and I'm very friendly with them. And, and really, because their children spend a lot of time with me, um, you know, I feel like we we share that the child raising. Even now, though those kids are now sort of teenagers, and or actually they're older now; they're in their twenties. But we really we we were there for the teenage years, and I think it really helps to have the mother and the stepmother become friends. Because if you do, then you can take it in turns. Um, you know, to help mm-hmm. the kid because sometimes you, you know, even when you're the birth mother of your child, your mother, your, your child needs someone else to talk to other than yes. you. You know, you have those moments where there's the mother-daughter thing, and it just, it's just kind of uh, you know butting heads, and it's helpful then to have mm-hmm. have the other mother there to be able to talk to. But you know, Jane, you I play good cop, bad cop. It works very well. <laughs> but you know, I um, I come back to the same thing I alluded to before, and I want to mention it again because it's important. So many people have trouble getting through the anger to even get to the point where they can talk to the other person. So what suggestions do you have for people to say, look, put down these swords, you know, and and let's think of the kids? Well, I think, you know, you you have to understand what's your motivation. I mean, my motivation is the kids. And I think any decent parent has to realize that the damage that is done to children in the breakup of a relationship or in living in a relationship that is dysfunctional or very unhappy. I mean, that's just as bad as, as you know, a breakup of a marriage. Maybe even worse. You know, they 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 need to see they need to see adults loving them, and they need to see adults being loved. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just very important to to let them be surrounded in that. Mm-hmm. And I think you just have to you have to put the other thing aside. Mm-hmm. You have to. Um, it's hard. I'm not saying it's easy. It, it really mm-hmm. it, it isn't easy, but it is possible. And I think a lot of people don't try it. And I think. You know, there's an enormous satisfaction that, that um, Jenny's mother and I have and Kaylin's mother and I have knowing that we've shared the trials and tribulations mm-hmm. of raising those children. Mm-hmm. Now, you have twins. You gave birth to twins at the age of 45, and you didn't know that you had preeclampsia or that you could have, but you, you could have not made it. And you did, and you received tremendous support from your husband, James, and from your doctors. Talk about, and I know you wrote a whole book on this, Jane. Talk about your advice to women over 40 who are considering pregnancy or who are pregnant. I would say that if you're going to have a baby, I would highly recommend doing it at the latest, probably in your mid-30s. 
Okay. Um, early 30s, I think, is preferable. Um, I think if you're going to do what I did, um, it's a modern miracle that it's possible. Mm. But there are a lot of health issues involved. There's health issues for the baby. There's health issues for you. And I think, you know, why I wrote the book, uh, I wrote a book called Two at a Time, A Journey Through Twin Pregnancy. I wrote that because there was no book at that time that really related to to that um, that instance, and you you know you read about people like myself having babies, you know, and, oh my gosh, isn't it wonderful? And they had two, and yes. look how thin they are. All they yes. obsessed with is how <laughs> thin true. you are afterwards. It's like, <laughs> oh, you know, the number of children and how thin you are, and I, it's not about that. I mean, first mm-hmm. of all, you have to be ready for motherhood, and motherhood is very exhausting. And when mm-hmm. you're older, you know, God kind of kind of got you. You're supposed to be slowing down at this point. Yeah. <laughs> um, I have a lot of energy, and I and I. I can afford to have people come and help me, which is wonderful, and I have a husband who helps, and, and I've already had children, so I'm a bit more, you know, at ease with having children. So I think having your first children at this age, I think, is, is very, very difficult. Um, I, don't, I don't recommend mm-hmm. it. And I think I didn't listen to my doctor properly. My doctor obviously told me that there were dangers, there were possible dangers, and I just was so gung-ho about having these children that I just decided to gloss over that piece of information. It's like not reading the small print. Mm-hmm. And then I went ahead, and, and yes, there were dangers, and yes, you know, I, I was confronted with them, and it was, it was life-threatening. But at the end of the day, am I glad I did this? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Am I thrilled to bits with the children? Absolutely. And am I being maybe a better mother now than I was the first time around? Quite possibly. Um, mm-hmm. I'm hoping. I mean, in, in some ways I maybe am, and in other ways maybe not. But I, I'm just so thrilled to have had the opportunity to do it again. And, and mm-hmm. I think it's such an amazing miracle that, that medicine, modern medicine makes it possible for people mm-hmm. to, to have children that wouldn't normally have been able to have children. How did, you, how did it change your life? You had two teenage children. Yes. And then, so how did it change your life having the babies? The well, first of all, it really helped those teenage years. When all my friends were dealing with uh, teenagers who were very grumpy and hormonal and, um, you know, going through their very dark moods, I mean, when my teenagers would try and go through their dark moods, sort of little adorable creatures age two or three would jump <laughs> on their laps and kiss them and cuddle them and love them to, be- to death. And, you know, even even the, 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 the most dire t- sort of... Um, Teenage angst can be crumbled by <laughs> by a small bundle mm-hmm. of joy. You know, there's this sort of incredible love that these little boys have. You know, when you talk about how you didn't listen because you were really gung ho, you know, it brings me to to the book. I'm not sure you want to talk about this book, but I think it's lovely. The, the book that you had written, um, which was about being romantic, it was Jane Jane Seymour's Guide to Romantic Living. I think that was the title. Yeah. Now, even though you didn't know at the time that you were having difficulties in your marriage. When you think back, I mean, talk about the positives of that. I mean, the positives that you were able to see beauty through all of that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, really the book was about how you could bring romance into your life. Now, when I said bringing romance, I also meant allowing... It was really as much a book about having dreaming about what you wanted to be and what you mm-hmm. wanted to do in life okay. and allowing yourself to do that rather than coming from a negative place. So it really was more a, a sort of a positive book about embracing life. And, and it was, you know, I wrote that at a time when, when I really thought that I was very happily married and things were really good and, and, um, and I was having a lot of fun and really enjoying the life that I had. Mm. And uh, it was a case of really 
kind of saying you don't have to spend money on it. You can have unique ideas. I mean, mm -hmm. I talked in that book about um, a children's birthday where I had been so busy I'd forgotten to order the birthday cake. And instead of tearing my hair out and just going, oh, my God, made it. a terrible thing. No, I didn't have time to make a cake. The, people were, they, the kids were going to be there in like half an hour. So I ran around the corner, got a pre-made you know, sponge cake, a regular cake, and then some buckets of icing and a whole bunch of things to decorate it with, grabbed, you know, some little candies, mini-sized candies, and had every intention of, of pulling this thing together in time for the kids. And then I suddenly thought, how much fun would it be to actually let the kids decorate their own cake? Mm. And um, it became a, a thing that mm. we did then every birthday, and it was the best thing. The kids loved it. I would have the boy cake, the girl cake, and the spare cake. So they'd have a team of boys and a team of girls, and they'd decorate their mm. cake. And, and, of course, the boy cake was, you know, there was more and more and more candy. It looked like a sort of great big um, mm. erupting volcano, and the girls' cake would be very interesting. <laughs> and it became like a, one, of, one of the focal parts of, of the birthday. Mm. In fact, we've been decorating cakes in every birthday party we've had since. So, so out of the negative comes the wonderful enlightenment and the light and the positive. There you go. So, you know, back to the book that, that I have coming out now. When we come back, we're going to talk to Jane Seymour about some of the other unbelievably inspirational stories that are in this book. Christopher Reeve is one, her sister Annie. There are so many people and just amazing stories of people who really turned their lives around when they were really down and out. So, folks, you can do it, too. You're listening to Positive Living. I'm Patricia Raskin. We'll be right back. Hi, welcome back, folks. You're listening to a specially pre-recorded program of Positive Living. Uh, I'm Patricia Raskin. My guest tonight is Jane Seymour. Jane is the author of the brand new book, Hot Off the Press, Remarkable Changes, Turning Life's Challenges into Opportunities. Welcome back, Jane. Um, wanted to talk about some of the remarkable people that are in your book. One of them, of course, is Christopher Reeve, who wrote the foreword to your book. Right. What an inspiring well, story. He, he's absolutely amazing. I mean, he is my inspiration on a daily basis. But the interesting thing there is that I had a conversation with him not so long ago in which he said, you know, by now I'd probably be a sort of an actor that people vaguely remembered from Superman or Somewhere in Time. And, and you know, that's what I would have been. I would have been a, a, an actor that, that had done a couple of roles. And now he's traveling all over the world. He's, mm -hmm. he's involved with um, changing the face of medicine in many ways with, um, mm -hmm. you know, being an advocate for um, stem cell um, therapy and research and, and really explaining to people how, how and why it's important and, and, and what it really means. It isn't really taking life away, you know. It's, and, and at the same time, it, he's, he's changing the world of, um, for people who, who have spinal injuries, and not just spinal injuries, but a lot of diseases that, that were incurable. And uh, he's just so powerful, and yet he can't move. Anything. I mean, he can mm. move a tiny bit, but I mean, he constantly has to be looked after, and, mm -hmm. and yet he is moving mountains. Do you, you know? th do you think he'll move enough mountains that in his lifetime he'll move again? What do you think? Do you know what? He's moving so many mountains in terms of um, psychologically and mm -hmm. in terms of making things happen and using other parts of himself. Um, how much he will he will get back physically, um, I don't know, but I do know he will get back a lot more than anyone ever imagined he already mm -hmm. has done. And, uh, you know, if it doesn't happen for him, he's going to make sure it happens mm -hmm. for someone else. So he's still being Superman. <laughs> 
he's way beyond Superman. I mean, yeah. there are some incredibly inspiring people. I mean, another one is, is, is Deborah. Yes. In the book, um, who um, is the one who has diabetes, mm-hmm. who, who is blind and uh, then had a kidney transplant and all kinds of things. And when she had the kidney transplant, she said, I had to have um, all these drugs that so that it wouldn't uh, reject and she said and I got chemical depression she said that was the hardest thing of all mm. she said I feel so sorry for anyone with depression because that's that's a really tough one so you can handle everything else yeah I was going to talk about George. What amazed me is that in my work uh, over the years, I've always felt that if you don't have a positive role model somewhere, you're not going to make it. And here's a, a person who was in and out of foster homes, had no positive role models, and read the Knights of the Round Table, and that alone had enough of an influence on him to break through, and now he's a successful executive. I thought that was powerful. It, it, it really is. I mean, I think the point is that you don't have to have the, po- the, the positive role image, you know, being being a parent, mm-hmm. that you really can find it in different places, and you can find it in literature. It's, it's mm. fantastic. Yeah. I just, you know, the, the whole foster care thing and the whole, um, you know, that, that whole issue and... That, that's very frightening too. What what kids have to go through. I mean, I was I was watching a movie the other day, The White Oleander. I don't know if you saw that. It's so mm. frightening. There's so many kids who are, are unloved and who are sort of discarded and who have to go through through horrendous things. Mm-hmm. And how those kids manage to pull themselves yeah. through and and really find, like George did, um, a purpose in life and a way of of going on and a way of believing that mm-hmm. it was possible for them to have a good life. Well, and another person you talk about a lot in the book is Sarah, who worked with Aaron, who was, I think, her brother's friend. And Aaron went through a four-year journey in and out of, of addiction. Oh, yeah. And now Sarah is uh, is a counselor for drug-addicted youth. But, I mean, she stayed with this with Aaron. And I thought that was, was pretty amazing, that she really laid her life down to help this, this girl and talk about really staying with someone and helping them through it. Absolutely. And, and you know, a lot of people... Um are dealing with kids with um, you know with drug abuse and, and drug problems and it's very prevalent. I mean, there's so mm-hmm. many people whose kids mm-hmm. are, are, are going through drugs. Mm-hmm. And what's amazing with her is that she realized that she could help parents of other kids, you know, who are going through mm-hmm. this, and and obviously stuck there, you know, for the for the child too. Another story that was was heart too. One about your sister Annie, which really struck me because she became a homeopathic healer, but she had been a housewife and kind of what she went through in terms of worrying that it would upset her marriage if she took on a career and how she worked through that and she's done really well. Absolutely, you know, and and she she had to give herself permission. It's interesting. She she found lots of reasons why she couldn't succeed mm-hmm. and why she couldn't be something that she wanted to be and she kind of made made those um choices be her husband's choice or or she she was it was she looked outside of herself to find mm-hmm. why she wouldn't be able to do what she wanted to do and i think a lot of us do that we say oh, we can't because right. either because it isn't done or right. because your parents won't let you or your husband won't let you or you can't because your kids are too young or whatever it is and what she basically did is when my father died is she just said you know what I, I can do this. I'm going to mm-hmm. do this. And she just did it. Mm. And, of course, having done it now, everybody is realizing, first of all, that she's brilliant at it. And secondly, you know, she's loved and, 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 and acknowledged by her family mm-hmm. more so now than if she hadn't done it. But they all respect <laughs> her for it because yeah. you know, we all have our own lives. And, yeah. and we have to do what we can do with our own lives. We have to be able to do our own best. We, we have to live our lives rather mm-hmm. than someone else's lives. Mm. 
One of the most compelling stories, we only have three minutes left, is the story of Leslie. This amazed me where the child was run over by a truck at two, but she forgave that driver as soon as she saw his face. That was something. That's pretty unbelievable, isn't it? Mm. I think if you try to put yourself in the other person's position as well, if you try to see it from both sides, you realize that that's the only choice you have. You have to Mm -hmm. let go. Mm. Absolutely. You know, and, and that's a healing thing for her. Jane, in the, in the minute we have left, what is your message? If people get one thing out of this interview tonight, what do you want them to get? I want them to feel that life's obstacles are not insurmountable, that there is a light at the end of the tunnel, and that maybe that light is a blossom. It's, it's some wonderful, amazing opportunity that they would never have had if this terrible thing hadn't happened. And that uniquely, that they can get through what they're getting through, but they should be open to the fact that there are remarkable opportunities awaiting awaiting them at the other side. We do have to process things that we go through in life. You know, we do have to process loss, and we do have to process uh, disappointment and 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 pain and and all the things. And that, and they will happen to everybody. Something similar to what's happened in what I wrote about in the book and the people's stories will ring a bell and will probably happen to you or someone you know at some point in your life. And that maybe through this book you can realize that mm. they are not insurmountable, that, you know, there is hope. Mm. And beyond hope, there, there mm-hmm. is a possibility of, of a very enjoyable life and some wonderful surprises. Thank you so much, Jane Seymour. Folks, you can log on to www.friendsofjane.com, and you, this book has just come out by HarperCollins, Reagan Books, and you can get it in any bookstore. So please, uh, please go to the bookstore and get this book. Jane Seymour, just thank you so much. It's been a really wonderful pleasure to be able to interview you. Uh, folks, uh, stay tuned for Positive Living next week. I'm Patricia Raskin. Good night. 